begin to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I, we will finish 1 Peter chapter 1 sometime. Um, I send my notes, uh, well not notes, just really a, a summary of where I'm going to Mr. McKillop, and, and I realized yesterday as I sent that to him that it's got another month before we get out of this, really. Um, but we're working our way very diligently through um, a lot of material that's very important in, in Peter's themes and, and in understanding our salvation. And that understanding is so necessary as a good foundation for our obedience and for our relationships, for our endurance. Remember that these are the mega themes of of Peter, that he wants you to endure suffering. He wants you to have right relationships in your life, uh, both within, the, within your relationship with God, with, within the church, and within the world. And so he's going to be talking about this within our families. Uh, but he also wants us to be obedient. And uh, this is not founded upon emotional approach, but as he has said, that we gird up the loins of our mind, that it requires our understanding and uh, all of this is in, we are now in a section of Scripture that is bookend by two if clauses that essentially say the same thing. Uh, the if clause of verse 17 uh, is that uh, if you call on the Father, if that is who, if you call God your Father, then this applies to you. And of course it is concluded really by chapter 2 verse 3, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. And so if that is our claim, and I would have to, because I know everyone in the room, uh, that that is your claim, that we make that claim, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a Christian, I am, God is my Father, uh, and, I, and He is a gracious God to me, I've tasted of that, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that when we get to it um, uh, in six or seven weeks, something like that, um, well, maybe three months, but whenever we get to that. Chapter 2, verse 3. But we're in this place between these two conditional clauses. If you claim this, then this should be evident in your life. These are the things that your life should look like. Uh, and again, this is not founded upon uh, how you feel about God, but what you know about God. And so all of this is in this idea of that we're going to be reasonable in understanding our faith, understanding its foundation, understanding what it, what it has accomplished for us, and understanding what it demands of us. And those three stages is what we have been working through. I know I haven't really communicated that overview, so I wanted to do that today uh, to look at those three stages of the Christian uh, experience. That if we make this claim that we need to understand the basis, the, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we started into that last week, that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, uh, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of lamb without blemish or spot. So we have this foundation, and we're going to talk more about that today. It is then going to be uh, look at what is accomplished for us, and we really already studied that a bit in 1 Peter, and we're going to see more of it in the weeks to come. What is it that this salvation has done for us, and it is extraordinary, and then what does it demand of us? And that is there as well, and we saw it all the way back in verse 17. It says that you're going to conduct yourself a different way if God is your Father. 
If you make that claim, your conduct should be different. It should be holy. You should be holy as God is holy. So we've been, we've been mixing these three uh, aspects of our faith uh, as we go along and, and trying to step on these bases. Peter's writing is a little different than Paul. Paul and others like Peter and even John are a little more systematic in, in uh, their theme development. And Peter isn't. He's, he's more scattered. He's, and for all of you who have ADD tendencies, you're going to like Peter because he just kind of, he keeps hitting it and then he keeps hitting it. So it might seem like if I wanted to really preach the themes, I would have to just pick out verses along Peter. And, and because he mixes the themes up so he integrates them. He just weaves them together, uh, one phrase after the other. And so uh, we keep revisiting these themes um, and, uh, and because they are so clearly woven and tightly woven in Peter's, we're going to keep coming to these themes and they're going to run into each other very frequently. And it's sometimes hard to separate those threads out without doing damage to the fabric, isn't it? And so uh, we, we want to be careful in our handling of God's word here. Uh, so we finished off last week by looking at the what it is that has redeemed us, that it is not the material, uh, but it is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we want to develop his work in our life, that he is the foundation today, and understand that. And Peter does this that the, in not only describing Jesus Christ in verse 19, but coming into verse 20 and, and following uh, that we understand that it is he that is the foundation of our faith. It is not that he accomplishes everything for us, irregardless of us. It is he is the foundation of our faith, and we place our faith where we choose to, and that is your liberty. And that's why the conditional clause is there, right? If you call him father. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is the conditional statement. And so what we're going to say is, is very clearly conditioned upon making it your own by faith. But it's not your faith you're trusting in. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ that your faith is relying upon. It is he that we're going to focus in on this morning. And so let's read together this portion of scripture. We're going to again back up and I'm going to read it. Uh, because I want to make sure we understand the context, beginning verse 13 again. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who... Through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so this is the, the 
work that we have ahead of us today and for the weeks to come, again, built upon that we're going to gird up the loins of our minds. So we're going to have to take some time and say, now, this is serious stuff. Um, I'm not here to be entertained. I need to engage my brain. I can't sleep through this and think I'm going to get it by osmosis. I cannot just coast in my brain. I can't just, uh, you can do that in front of a TV screen, uh, but it's not going to work here. Uh, because then you'll have no benefit. And so you're going to have to engage yourself with this. And so we come to a description of Jesus Christ. And we have a, a, a structure that is built here that we're going to get to. Once we describe Christ and understand him, we have this, this uh, finely tuned and very brief, concise statements of who is doing what in what time frame. And... Uh, it, it is a powerful verse that talks about and helps us understand how salvation happens in our life and what it is to believe in Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. We come to verse 19, and of course we understand the precious blood of Christ, the necessity that without the shedding of blood there is no removal of sin, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were presaging Jesus Christ his sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. That's why they had to be given over and over and over again. The book of Hebrews goes into extensive teaching on that. That That's why they had to be repeated again and again and again. Every morning as a priest, you had to go out there and sacrifice the lamb. Every evening before your day were done, you had to sacrifice another lamb day in and day out, over and over and over again. This was your activity. Shedding the blood of lambs, goats, bulls, um, sometimes birds and things like that, but shedding blood all day long. That's what your job was. Uh, to deal with sin of a nation, of a people, of your own sin. And Jesus Christ comes in and his blood is that which resolved that once and for all. It was a singular sacrifice covered for all men, uh, completely, did not have to be repeated over and over and over and over again. And those that teach us somehow, we have to, even on a spiritual level, have to keep shedding Christ's blood, are, are in error. They do not know the scriptures. He has, it is a once for all, for all people, for all time. This sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of all men. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this description as of a lamb. Remember, he's not without blemish and without spot. And this is a precious uh, description to the Jewish believers, particularly because they understood the requirements of the law. And for we who are well-trained, for you who, are, who know the law, you, you should have some appreciation of this as well. Uh, that one of the requirements was... Uh, on various sacrifices, that the sacrifice you were bringing was, the, was not your weakest, injured, uh, ugliest animal, but you brought the very best of your flocks, of your herds, that you brought them in, and uh, the requirement was that they be without blemish, that they be without injury, without, uh, without any marks on them, uh, without spot, and so we were to bring these, the very best of what we had, we bring. When it comes to Passover, they were to take that lamb um, that they had designated for that and actually bring it into their home 10 days, or not 10 days, four days before 
it was to be sacrificed. And so on the 10th of Nisan, they were supposed to bring it in with an expectation they weren't going to sacrifice it until the 14th. They were going to bring it into their very homes and care for it. So they're identifying the very best of their lambs. They bring it into their home for four days. They get well attached to it. Isn't that horrible? They get very attached to it, almost like a little pet. And then you sacrifice it. And then you shed that blood. And then you roast that meat. And that is your Paschal meal. And so they're to select the best as a picture of what God would do for us is that he would send this perfect sacrifice that a true truly a lamb without any blemish or any spot and we recognize that as as being that sinless one and so Jesus Christ comes and what is the preciousness of the blood of Christ is not simply that he is the son of God that is certainly makes it precious but because of its perfection that he, not even just the innocent blood, because innocent blood is shed all the time, but his is perfection as the Son of God and fully innocent, both in his genealogy of having been born of the Spirit uh, in, in Mary's womb and in his living, that he is without blemish and without spot. And so all of this is necessary for the sacrifice to be acceptable to God to cover our sin. And that is the preciousness of the blood of Christ that we need to appreciate. I don't care how you feel about it. Um, I'm pretty sure that most Jewish households, having brought in this cute little lamb and brought it into their homes and cared for it in the warmth of their home for four days, cried that day that they had to sacrifice it. And, and I don't know what kind of, we often think, well, it's, it's just a joyous service. No, most Passover meals were very somber. They're very, in fact, one of the things they were, that they consumed during that is bitter herbs to remind themselves that this is a serious thing. And that's why Peter's told us, gird loins your mind, understand what was necessary, be sober about this, get serious, and recognize that God sent his son, the perfect lamb of God, to shed his blood, not for himself, not for God, but for you. That that blood was let because of my sin. And it should not change our view about God. It shouldn't change our view about the lamb. That uh, those things are precious. It should change our view about sin. We should hate it. Because look at the costliness of sin, not only in terms of what it costs me, in terms of misery, illness, death, the, all those kinds of things, uh, but it, what it cost Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who did not have sin, that he who knew no sin became sin for me. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that out of his love for us. And so I reflect upon the preciousness of the blood of Christ and as the Lamb. And then we having that foundation and having that understanding, we then go into verse 20 and 21 and begin the structure. And this is a very structured verse. And I almost need to draw a chart out for you a little bit, I think, but it would get kind of messy and, and probably wouldn't be very that helpful in the end, but just to get the idea. So we're going to have uh, three involved, actually four, four involved here. 
But we're going to really focus on three. The fourth is going to come in a little later on. Uh, not today, like other weeks. Uh, he is Jesus Christ in verse 20. Uh, and so he is one entity that we're going to be talking about. The other one is God. And he is the one that uh, we're going to talk about his role in all of this. And then it is you. And you, plural there, uh, the, the body of saints, believers. And you individually as a believer. And so we have these three. And we're going to talk about the, the relationship between these three. And again, the foundation and what is entailed. So we have God the Father. No man has seen God any time. And then we have the only begotten. He is the revealer of God. And then we have you, the sinner, who is estranged from God. How are we going to resolve this? And so we have Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so before God even created the world, there was a knowledge, and that's really the word there is prognostics, that, that's prognosko in Greek, but the idea of knowing ahead of time. Gnosis is to know, uh, pro is before, uh, or pra. And so when you go, you ask him for a prognosis from a doctor, you ask them to tell you what is wrong with you. And so Jesus Christ is the, is the foreordained or foreknown. It was God knew well in advance how he would respond to man's sin, even before there was sin. Now, does that mean God is responsible for sin coming into existence? Does this say God foreordained sin? No. Does it say that God foreordained who would get saved? No. Did God foreordain all of that? No. He foreknew that, there, that if men sinned, and this is the conditional clause, that if men sinned, how he would resolve it. That it would require Jesus Christ. This concept is what's lacking in so many doctrines that Mr. Rakelf has already referred to this morning and not just Calvinism, but Arminianism as well, is that foreknowledge does not equal causation. Because I know it doesn't mean I caused it, and I've taught that extensively here. But God foreknew before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would be the one who would resolve sin should it come upon the earth. This is what he foreknew. Now, when we go to the other uses, and this term, foreordained, is not new to Peter. Uh, we're going to see it again in one of his early sermons, one of his, his second sermon that we have recorded for us uh, in the book of Acts. We're going to turn there in a little bit. But this word is not used frequently in the Bible. And by the way, it is really focused in on either Jesus Christ or what kind of salvation you're receiving. And we're going to look at a couple of those. And so when we talk about what does God plan ahead? Did he plan who would get saved and who would not get saved? No, he planned ahead the salvation of the world. How can I save the world from their sin should sin come in? And for the very real possibility of that, introduced as soon as he committed to giving Adam and Eve his image. That we're going to create an image bearer on the earth. And that image, 
of God that he placed inside of man, distinct from all other creation, distinct from the angels, distinct from the animal kingdom, distinct from the plant kingdom, distinct from rocks and stones, and, and uh, he has placed upon us. And that produced the possibility, I'm not even going to say the probability or the likelihood, but the possibility that they would reject God and sin. And having placed that in man, it is necessary then to have a plan, a contingent plan, what happens if they choose to exercise their authority against their creator, which of course Adam and Eve did. And we have inherited that propensity. And so God planned and this idea of foreknowing, foreordaining, used here in the, in the King James, or New King James, uh, is a whole idea of planning ahead. Many of you have retirement funds. I think that's kind of funny. No, but you're planning ahead to retire. All right, some of you are pretty young to even be thinking about it, but you're planning, all right? And so you have your, oh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what you guys would have. Government employees have something different than the rest of us. So we're all putting it aside, planning for retirement. And so my, and my, some, my wife's employer matches what up to a certain amount, what you put into your retirement, they match it. And that's all pre-planning. Um, and we pre-plan many things that we see coming. And hopefully we pre-plan for the fact that, well, things wear out and break down. And so in when I teach people to make a budget for their home, I said, well, you do better budget because think, you know, appliances break, things in your house break, they wear out uh, because of the second law of thermodynamics, everything wears down, goes to disorder, and so you're going to have to put some investment into these things so you better plan ahead. You're going to have to replace your car sometime. So you might as well start saving now for that. You plan ahead for these, and you take action today for something you anticipate happening eventually. Uh, but does that mean that everyone who plans for retirement retires? No, no, not everyone who plans to retire, retire. Many people um, don't live that long. And many people, when they get to retirement, I don't really want to retire, I want to keep working. And they work until they pass, and until they die. And, and we find, and then they pass on all of this that they set aside for their retirement gets passed on to their heirs, to their children or grandchildren or someone. And so this pre-planning does not necessitate, just because I pre-plan something doesn't mean that that event has to happen. God pre-planned for sin. He planned for it. Not for it to happen, but for if it happens, for when it happens. I want to pre-plan. And Jesus Christ was the preparation for sin. God, from before creation, he, they had already made that preparation. Said so it is the Son, the second person of the deity, that will be the covering for sin. It is his blood that we said. It is he who will become flesh. It is he who will endure all of that. It is he. And so who does this pre-planning? And, and we really relate that uh, particularly to the work of God the Father. 
And so before the foundation of earth, Jesus Christ was set aside, he was pre-planned for the, the provision to cover sin should it come. Does that necessitate sin coming? No. Is it God planning sin to happen? No. He has planned for the possibility, even probability, if you want to talk about that, use that word, of sin happening. Because he knew how he was going to create man. That he wanted to create man different than all the rest of creation. To bring us into a, a closeness to him that even angels can't experience. And so do not let others come and take these kinds of words and then put upon God the responsibility of sin, that he willed it. God did not want sin on the earth. Planning for it does not mean I want it. I have pre-planned some things for my funeral, and you should do that. Write out what you want your funeral. It will really be helpful. Give it to me and pre-plan it. Some of people go as far as getting the lot, getting everything prepaid, all that. Well, does that mean I want to die? Because I pre-planned for it? Can't wait till I die. So I can, I don't want to waste this plan, right? <laughs> you know? No, I, I would much prefer to not die. I would much prefer to be translated at the rapture of Jesus Christ and then uh, and all the pre-planning for my funeral will just be wasted. Well, I would prefer that. But the but death happens and until the Lord comes it will continue to happen and so I have a plan. I hope it never has to be implemented. And I think when we come to the concepts of God foreknowing and foreplanning, prognosing, that we have to understand that concept that is real to you and me uh, and real to him. That do not saddle him with sin because he has planned for its resolution should it come upon his creation. So we come to this word. Now this word is not unusual to Peter. I told you we're going to go to Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, this is uh, Peter's sermon on Solomon's porch. I think it would be honest. The best thing to do is to read the entire sermon. Uh, and look at it. In verse 12, it picks up that Peter saw it. He responded to the people. Here's the response. This is after they had healed a lame man. Remember, we actually looked at that text last week. Remember, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. We, we talked about that, and we sang the little song last week. Do you, how many of you remember the song? Okay, a few of you remember the song. Some of you go, we sang a song last week? Um, yeah, you slept through it. But So gird up your mind. All right, stay with me. So we, we looked at the event last week. Now we're going to look at the sermon after the event. Here we go. It says, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses." 
and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But the, those things which God foretold by the mouth of of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him, you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among you. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these things. These days, I'm sorry. You are sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And I don't know how you can read that and not conclude that Peter's expectation was that every single person who heard the gospel should respond. Correct? Isn't that what his expectation of God is? And Peter well, had that same expectation. The prophets had that expectation. But we really want to focus in on one phrase. It is translated here. It's using the same word, prognosis, um, that we have in our text um, back here. When it talked about, uh, verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer. And the concept here is this, he said ahead of time. He planned ahead. He foreordained. He foreknew. He preplanned this. That while you crucified the prince of life that God sent to you, that was... Uh, that God's plan was inclusive of that, the necessity of the death, the necessity of the shed blood for our sins. He spoke of it of the prophets, and so that was one aspect of this pre-planning, that he communicated to the prophets hundreds of years, but it, Peter goes even further in 1 Peter and says, no, this was planned even before the foundation of the earth. And then it was revealed next to the prophets hundreds of years before it occurred, and now it, you have seen it done here. And you can see many elements of this second sermon of Peter show up in this passage of 1 Peter 1 that we are studying right now. These elements, and so this is a theme that Peter has been preaching all of his ministry. This is something new, not something new that just showed up in 1 Peter. This has been from the very beginning, this has been Peter's message. That God had a plan. And you can resist that plan, but the expectation of God is that you will accept it. Even the very people who cried out, crucify him, even the enemies of God in the, in the, in the Sanhedrin, even the Pharisees, that all of them should accept Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. This is God's plan. You're not planned for just the salvation of some, but for the salvation of all. When we speak of the sufficiency of Christ, we do not speak as others who say that it is sufficient for all, but only for the elect. 
It's enough for everybody, but God only intended it for the elect. No, when we talk about the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ covering sin for all men, we are talking about the universality of the gospel message. That it is provided for all, offered to all, honestly. This is the message of the gospel. We're going to revisit this at the end of 1 Peter 1 again. It talks about this is the word of the gospel is preached to you. So it was preached in Acts chapter 3, and Peter keeps hammering this message again and again and again. One of the themes of his preaching and teaching was that this is God's plan. And we are in a privileged position because while it was planned from the very beginning, and he communicated through the prophets in 1 Peter 1 and as well as in the sermon in Acts 3, but it has come to you. It has been revealed, manifested, shown uh, to you. We get to see it. They could conceive of it in the future. Right? So when sin came into the garden, God cursed the serpent, cursed Eve, cursed Adam. Uh, but there was also a promise in there. And Eve evidences the fact that she believed that promise and how she named her children. Uh, the concept is that from the seed of the woman uh, will come one that will crush Satan's head. But Satan will bruise his heel. The, the promise was there with the introduction of sin, and the curse came the introduction of the promise. And so they could look forward to it, but they wouldn't experience it. They wouldn't actually see it in their lifetime. The prophets were told about it and told lots of specific information about the Christ, about the Messiah. Moses was told about it. He told his people, hey, a prophet is going to come greater than me. And when you see that guy come, follow him. And Moses didn't see it. His people didn't see it. Joshua and those people that you're studying in Sunday school, they didn't see it. They could only conceive of it coming one day, one day, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, no one saw it. And that is why when we come to the birth narrative, uh, particularly described in Luke, where we have uh, these coming, when, when Jesus is brought into the temple to be, to be set aside in, in the day of purification, that uh, there's this wonder, I can rest now because I have seen your salvation. Has he died on the cross yet? No. But Simeon comes and says, I get to hold my Savior. He's just a baby right now, but I've seen him. God in the flesh living among us, and that's enough for me. And now Peter is saying, we have seen all of his life, we have heard all of his teaching, we've seen the power of God work through him, we have seen him suffer cruelly on the cross, just as was prophesied, Isaiah 53 and other passages, just as was prophesied, just was foreseen, now we have seen. It was foreseen then, it is now seen. We've already seen it. And in a sense, we have already seen it. It is a historical reality, and, and, and one that, go ahead and try to find out and disprove it. Go ahead and try. Unless you hire Facebook's fact checkers, you're going to find out that it's true. Completely true. It cannot be denied. Our Savior died and rose again. We have seen it. It was manifest. It was made seen. Not just promised, but made to happen and is now a historical reality, and so it is for you. We are in a privileged position. We don't look forward to, to 
Jesus Christ sacrificed for us every day when we're slitting lamb's throats as a nation. Aren't you glad you didn't have to do that before you came to church today? Or the first thing you, we did when you come to church is we have to go outside, slit a lamb's throat, now you can come in. Imagine that being, a, just even one day a week, imagine that being part of your worship. Yeah, you're kind of disassociated from that, aren't you? You know why? Because of the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ that has already been manifest. It's already been done. It's been seen. It's been accomplished. And so it's been a foreordained, it's been manifest to us in this time. And so God pre-planned it, spoke of it through the prophets, and now it was accomplished historically, Jesus Christ's sacrifice. So what does that mean? It was for me, but it requires something of me. And so now, but we're not done with talking about Christ. And it says, who, that's you, through him, that's Jesus Christ, believe in God. And so if you want to say, I believe in God, I usually press you a little bit. If someone says, I believe in God, and I'm trying to share the gospel, with them, I believe in God, and I always kind of, okay. And that declaration, is that declaration enough? Well, James tells us that, that the demons believe in God and they're afraid of him. Is that enough? No. Uh, just believing in God, every Jewish person believed in God. Do you think the Pharisees believed in God? Do you think the Sanhedrin believed in God? Do you think all the crowd that cried out, crucify him, believed in God? Yes, they all believed in God, but they rejected Jesus Christ. So now, what we have is, you're going to believe in God, but you're going to do it on God's terms, and, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so, you, who, through him, that is, through Jesus Christ, you're going to believe in God. We get to see Jesus Christ, that's a reality, and now I don't have to go to the temple three times a year uh, to make a sacrifice, I don't have to make that pilgrimage, I don't have to make these sacrifices for every sin in my life, I don't have to go through the Day of Atonement once a year, I don't have to do these things. Because that has been manifest, and now I, through trusting in Jesus, believe in God. This is the process this is the structure of our faith. Through Jesus Christ, we believe in God who raised him from the dead. And again, we're going back to the historical reality. So, how is believing in Jesus Christ believing in God? All right, so for all those theists, a theist is someone who believes in God, so all those theists who are not Christians, and there are many, many of them who are theists but are not Christians. They believe in God as they define God. But they do not believe in Jesus Christ. There are many, many theists in Israel today who do not, are not Christians. They believe in God, but not in Jesus Christ. And Peter here is dealing with this. How do we address this? Well, we are not replacing your God. We are telling you your approach to God is wrong. So we're not replacing your God we're telling you what God requires, what your God requires of you. 
what God, the creator of all the earth, requires of his creation. And that is that he had planned one and only one means by which you can be saved, by which you can be redeemed, is the term we have here earlier in the passage, by which you can be brought into his very family, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we, to whom have seen that event, that event has occurred historically in our past, can have access to this God through belief in Jesus Christ. And the one that we give wonderful credit to for the resurrection is not Jesus, it's God, the Father. And again, we can go through all the sermons of Peter in Acts, and you'll find this repeated over and over again in sermons throughout the book of Acts. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him with cruel hands, you took him and crucified him. You did that. God raised him from the dead. And I want to share with you that if you want to have a right relationship with God, you're going to have to accept that phrase and take ownership of it, that you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. What does that mean? It means my sin caused his death. My sin. Not everyone's sin, not the world's sin, not those guys' sin back there that actually yelled it and did it, but my sin that my sin crucified the Lord of all the earth. My sin did that. My sin did that. But God raised him from the dead. Because what I bring to the table is only destruction and misery. All I can bring is death. My sin crucified the Lord. But God raised him from the dead. So what did I contribute to this mechanism? What I contributed was sin. And we could talk about how wonderful our faith is, but it really begins by understanding what our sin is. That I crucified my Lord. My sin crucified him. God raised him from the dead. This is God's grace. So what has the Father done? He has pre-planned. He has sent Jesus Christ. And then when I come into the equation, I cause crucifixion. I cause death in the innocent one. God comes in into that equation again and says, I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to conquer death. Thus, I'm going to conquer your sin, and I'm going to remove it. I'm going to accept the sacrifice of my son, his shed blood, to cover your sin and to relieve you of eternal death. This is the mechanism that Peter preached over and over and over again, and it should be no surprise to find it in this book attributed to him. These are the exact same things he preaches, and he's just written it down this time instead of speaking it. And so God raised him from the dead. I crucified him. And so you want to believe in God? Well, you're going to have to believe in God through Jesus Christ and recognize that the resurrection is an integral part of that. It is the expression of God the Father's acceptance of these contractual terms of relationship. That if we want a relationship with God, he has already written the contract. He wrote it before the foundation of the earth. If anyone wants to be right with me, they must receive my son Jesus Christ. He, they must receive him. They must apply that blood to the doorposts of their heart that they might have communion with me and avoid death, the consequence of their sin. This is the contractual terms that God lays forth, and by the resurrecting of Jesus Christ, God signed that contract. 
But a contract requires two signatures, doesn't it? And if you've ever purchased, and so you have the signature of the seller and the signature of the buyer. God has signed that contract. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is God's signature upon this offer of salvation to all men. He has signed his part. He has completed. He has accepted the payment. Jesus Christ is the payment. God is the contractor. He is the, he is the one who has signed that. And now we are offered this contract. Wow. The contents of the contract, God has established from eternity past. He's not going to just take care of your sin. He's going to give you a whole lot more. And this is what Ephesians goes into. What has God chosen for us who believe? Not who has God chosen to believe, but what has God chosen? What has God put in this contract for we who believe? That is what Ephesians is talking about when he talks, it lists all these wonderful things that Christians receive. He's not talking about which Christian, which people get it. He's talking about what people can get if they will just accept the contract. Sign your name right beside God's. The signature of God on this offer of salvation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you deny the resurrection, you erase the signature and you have no means of coming into a relationship with God. You have no access to heaven. I don't care what you believe. It must be upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we place our faith. This is what we rely upon. It is the, it is the signature of God on the entire deal. The biblical word for that is covenant. Our president's term is deal. God raised him from the dead. God gave him glory. And so when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are in fact having faith and hope in God. Jesus Christ was the pre-planned one. The eternity past, the Godhead pre-planned. We're going to, it's second, it's the Son, you, out of us three that are one. And again, that's beyond our capacity to really resolve that, those terms. None of those terms are adequate, but uh, we pre-plan that. We pre-plan how much we are going to, what are we going to offer to people, these dirty, rotten sinners who might reject us in the garden? What are we going to offer them? How much, how, how good are we going to be to them? But the signature was the resurrection and the ascension, raising him to glory. That was the signature. Contract's ready. It's been signed by the offerer, and he offers it to all men. And when we receive that, when we accept the payment price of Jesus Christ, and we trust in Christ, in the resurrected one, then we are in fact trusting in the one who resurrected him. And so our trust isn't just in Jesus alone, just like it shouldn't be in God alone. It should be in God through Jesus Christ. That our trust is in this triune God. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit next week in the very next verse. Well, it's not going to actually be next week. It'll probably be two or three weeks, but we're going to get there. Um, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in that uh, as well. But here Peter puts this together 
And here's the mechanism of how our faith works. And for Peter, this was in every sermon we have recorded, he has these elements there. It is the gospel to him. There is no other message. And this structure is what we need to be communicating to those that we encounter, that you must trust in Jesus. You believe in God, that's fine and well, but it's not enough. You're still, gonna, you're still separated from him because you believing in God does not resolve sin. It doesn't take away anything. It doesn't eradicate this problem of sin and death, this barrier between you and God. I believe in God. Isn't that enough? No, because really what you're saying is that your belief is enough to save you, and it's not. If it was, there would have been no need to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross. There would have been no need for all that. And so we want to press people. Do not be satisfied. Well, he's a good person. I like him. And he says he believes in God. So I'm okay with that. And I hear a lot of Christians say, oh, they're, not, they're, they're a good guy and he believes in God. And I was like, I cringe a little bit. I said, well, Peter wouldn't be satisfied with that. Every enemy of Jesus Christ in Israel fits that mold. Every enemy Every single person who yelled crucify him fits that mold. And you're saying that's okay. Well, they believe in God, that's enough. Every single Sadducee, Pharisee, priest, teacher of the law, scribe, would fit that mold. And they all oppose Jesus Christ. And you think it's enough. No, it wasn't enough to Peter. He says, you're not in a relationship. You don't have a contraction. You don't have a deal with God. You don't have a covenant with him. Because you have not accepted the terms of his covenant. And that is that you must trust in Jesus Christ and have that, that precious blood of Jesus Christ redeem you, buy you back out of your sin and death and your slavery there to be God's, to belong to him. Your faith and your hope are in God only through accepting and receiving and believing in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, who is in glory, who is our mediator. We're going to be revisiting that down the road, but he is the mediator. And it is this that we must communicate as the gospel. It is this that we must accept. And it is this that we must understand. Because once we understand that mechanism, now it resolves all these theological issues are surrounding us. When I say, well, God pre-planned salvation. Yes, the Bible teaches that very clear. He pre-planned salvation, but he did not pre-plan who the saved ones were. Just as he didn't pre-plan sin. He pre-planned for sin. That's a very different thing. He pre-planned for salvation. He didn't pre-plan who would be saved. Any more than he pre-planned who would sin. Or, what would, or that sin would even happen. Rather, we find God gracious. He has given us this, this offer, this deal, and he has signed it. He has but it is exclusive. There's only one way. It has to be according to his terms. Because he is the benefactor, not we. All we bring is ruin. 
All we bring is sin. We have, we have no benefit to God. He is the benefactor. He is the one who has much. We have nothing. We have the debt. And when the benefactor comes and gives you an offer, jump at it. Wouldn't you jump at it? You would think. If your mortgage holder, for those of you who have mortgages, if your mortgage holder comes to you and said, hey, um, we're going to forgive your mortgage. Um, you just have to sign this thing, and uh, we just require you to put a new roof on your house. Then we'll forgive your whole mortgage. How many of you would jump at it? Yes, thank you. Two people, three, all right. Man, some of you just, they must not have mortgages. I don't know. But yes, of course, oh, you ask this little bit of me, and in exchange I get free of all my debt. Of course I'm going to sign up for that, and yet people resist. Humble yourself. You say you believe in God. Then believe in the terms of the contract he offers you. Don't let your stubborn belief in God convince you that it's sufficient and then miss out on this beautiful thing that God has paid for. He's willing to pay off your sin debt on his terms, and his terms are easy. Jesus Christ said, my burden is light. (laughs) He has a burden, and it is that your faith and hope is in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. I'm not going to erase the signature of God off that contract. It is the most precious part of it. It makes it real. It makes it valid. The the offer is valid because of the resurrection, not because of the death. The death is the price, but the validity of the contract is in the resurrection and ascension. This is what we must understand. Once we meditate on these things and and bind these up in our mind, we begin, we are rested in hope. We are rested in our faith. We are established in them. And all of this other milieu around us that seeks to, to crash in on that and question and bring doubt and fear and things like that are just eradicated because I know whom I have believed in. I know the apparatus that God has established and the mechanism and how it happened. I am not ignorant. That's how the Jews were. They were ignorant. Peter said in his sermon, right? You were ignorant. But now you're not. And he says it here. Don't, don't act like what, how you acted when you were ignorant. We talked about that last week. But rather that we are knowledgeable and trusting in Jesus Christ. And I implore you in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with the world, that we not accept these statements from people as sufficient for salvation. Well, I believe in God, so I'm okay. Oh, please, challenge them on that statement. For they must hear the gospel, because that is not the gospel, to say, I believe in God. If your faith and hope is in God, then you must hope and have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You must apply the blood. You must trust in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, as, for that is the signature of the contract with God. This is why it's necessary to go beyond just, I believe in God. 
and realize I need to trust fully in Jesus Christ that he died for me. My sin crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. God can forgive me and bring me into his very family. This is the offer we give. Not from us, not from the church, not from me, but from our king. We are simply his ambassadors of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for this wonderful offer of salvation. And we see the great costliness of it, but we also see the great benefit of it, the the wonder of our salvation, a joy even to you that helped you to endure that cross and despise its shame. And so we pray that we might be careful to understand our faith, to meditate upon it, and then to live according to it, and then also to communicate it properly. To test men's faith of what they are truly trusting in. That we would not simply take generalized statements as sufficient, that they are right with God, but that we might explore it with them, that we might know that they might not be ignorant, that believing God isn't enough. Lord, help us to to tell them the good news, that there is a provision. There is an offer to all men. Lord, help us communicate that even this week. Whether men accept it or reject it, that we might be faithful in communicating it. As Peter did in these sermons, as he does in his letter, help us to do so as well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.